Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Andrea Molyneux grew up in California, where her original plan was to become an astronaut rather than a winemaker. These days, her home is in South Africa, where she's created two world-class wineries with her husband Chris, Molyneux Family Wines and New Passant. She's a fascinating interviewee, equally happy to discuss her love of Chenin Blanc and Syrah, the properties of different soil types, the genesis of the Swartland Revolution, and the perfect recipe for chocolate chip cookies. Hi, Andre. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm really well. Where have you just got back from? You're always traveling. I can't believe you. You're always on the move. Yeah, no, well, well, after we finished up this, uh, this season's pruning, um, we I zipped off to Johannesburg uh, with, with the rest of the winemakers from the Cape Winemakers Guild, and we're getting ready to show off all of our um, uh, this year's auction wines. And that'll be quite soon, won't it? September? Well, we're in September now. It's pretty soon, the the, the auction, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, last day of September, first day of October. So it's, it's a really exciting time, and we haven't done it live, you know, just like everyone else since 2019. Yeah. Yeah, and there's some fantastic wines in them. I've been lucky enough to taste a few of them uh, ahead of the auction, including one of yours, two of yours. Uh, and they're really, it's really worth looking at. What should people look out for? Is there a website they should look out for for the Cape Winemakers Guild auction? Yeah, capewinemakersguild.com. And it's it's a very informative right. website, both on the auction and also just some of the sub-programs like the Protégé program that are involved with that. Yeah, we'll talk about the Protégé program later because that's a really fascinating bit of what's going on in South Africa right now. But I want to start by talking about you. People can hear from your accent that you're not South African, that you are an American and you're from California and you've maintained your accent all the way through. Just tell us a little bit about your 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 parents. Were they wine people? I mean, is everybody a wine person in California in a way? Hey, my, my parents are wine appreciators. Um, I didn't come from a winemaking background. Uh, my grandparents were actually Italian-American immigrants. And so the wine is a, is a cultural aspect of, of the dinner of dinner time. And, um, you know, it wasn't fine wine, but we learned how to appreciate wine and, and how it evoked conversation and you know, really brought uh, liveliness to the dinner table. So that, that's really the only wine background I had. And how far back are you Italian? Are your parents Italian or your grandparents yeah. or great-grandparents? Grandparents, okay. Yeah, my grandparents and my mother, my maternal grandparents. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I read somewhere that you wanted to be an astronaut when you were growing up until you were 17, right? I mean, was that a serious ambition? No, absolutely. Um, my grandfather was involved with the with NASA and, and with the lunar landing in 69. So even though uh, that was um, a decade before I was born, it was something I absolutely grew up obsessed with. I had a lot of memorabilia and um, you know cool flight maps and all sorts of things growing up and I actually used to call specifically female astronauts out of the blue and and just interview them because I was just like fascinated by everything and how do you think you'd have fared in outer space I reckon you'd have been pretty good because you're you're <laughs> a very organized person and you're you know I think I think you would fare pretty well I mean you you're a tough little cookie I think you'd do well in outer space no, I think so. It was interesting because I, I only applied to two universities and it was um, one university was for winemaking and one university was for astrophysics. 
and I, I did get into both. Um, and it was actually the dean of one of the universities called me one day to interview me about because he could see where else I had applied. And he interviewed me and was just like, you need to explain this and please describe these career choice potentials. Um, and it was interesting because in that process, you know, it was almost like therapy. You start talking about why you want to do this or, you know, why winemaking makes sense in your life. Um, and all of a sudden I was like, I, I came out of it thinking like, I want to be a winemaker. I need to be a winemaker because it just made sense. So, you know, I mentioned that my grandfather was a scientist, but everyone in my family was either a scientist or an artist. And wine was just that perfect combination. It was actually much more in me, the, the potential to be a winemaker than to be an astronaut. Well, I mean, I think any of us who love your wines, and there are lots of people who love your wines, are very happy you made that choice. <laughs> I think it's very important. I mean, when did you decide that you wanted to be a winemaker and said, was it really that point when you'd applied to these two universities and you thought, okay, I've got to make the choice? Was that really the moment? Yeah, I mean, it, there wasn't ever a had to make a choice, but it was definitely like an intuitive, like, this is, this is what I need to do with my life. This is where I'm going to be happy. And, um, and it was at that point. I was 17. Mm. I mean, you've talked about the art and science of winemaking. That's why it appealed to you. Is, is there art in being an astronaut? I suppose you don't know because you never became one. But, you know, you <laughs> talked about these, you talked to these female astronauts. Is there an artistic side to, to space exploration? Well, I, I'm sure there absolutely is in terms of the creativity. You know, you in anything in life, you know, you've got objectivity and, and subjectivity. And when you have science, you have hard facts. But mm. even in sciences, when you're physically involved with something, there's the potential for something to not go according to plan. Mm. And I think, you know, the art part is actually a creative side where, where you know, with all the knowledge you've built up mm. in your career um, and in your practice, you can then apply that to be creative, whether right. it's a very scientific career or whether it's a very artistic career. Because even in arts, there's a lot of science. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I wanted to ask you about this because you went on to study, you made that choice, viticulture at UC Davis, California, very prestigious place to study. And it's pretty academic, I think, as a, as a place to study. And one of the things I always enjoy about talking to you is you've got that academic background and you know all the science. I mean, are there times when you have to almost forget the science or, or is it always a useful base in your career? No, it's always a useful base. I mean, you know, when it comes to going to university, you know, I, I really do believe that we're all responsible for the fulfillment we get out of life. And if you go into a university knowing that they're going to give you the base knowledge and it's your responsibility to build on that, because some people do want to stay scientific um, and maybe become a professor or a researcher and other people uh, want to be more hands on and, and really get dirty in the winery. And, um, and so it's the job of the person who's going down that career path to, to surround themselves or to take themselves to places where you're going to get that further knowledge that's going to take you to where you want to be. I mean, have you ever found yourself doing stuff in the winery and thought, oh, God, if my professors and Davis could see this, they'd be going, Andrea, what are you doing? No. <laughs> no. In fact, I probably more often have to go back to some of the, the my old textbooks because they're very useful textbooks your entire life. Where I was like, whoa, what's going on here? <laughs> to remind yourself of it. But that's the thing is it, it's baby steps. You know, you mm. all winemakers um, do tend to do a lot of internships before they settle mm. down somewhere. And in each one of those internships, sometimes you only take away 
one thing with you that you want to add on to your like repertoire for when you do become mm-hmm. a winemaker one day. Um, sometimes you're incredibly influenced and you almost you know want to do exactly what you learned. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, you're learning that base knowledge and then you're you're building off of it. Um, you know, never were we ever told like, no, you can't do this. But mm-hmm. what we were definitely taught was if you are doing this this is why it's happening and this is where it's yeah. going to go. And yeah. I think that's yeah. incredibly powerful, powerful knowledge, um, you know, going into this kind of career. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, brought up, lived in, 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 in California, obviously first step, you went and worked in the Napa Valley for a bit. Then you went to, of course, to, to Europe and then South Africa. I just wonder, you know, you've achieved so much uh, in such a short space of time. Could you have done the same thing in Napa Valley? Do you think, I mean, you know, are, are the openings there for young winemakers to achieve what you've done? Well, I think especially in the last 15 years or so, there's been actually an amazing amount of, of you know, more new independent winemakers that, um, you know, we really respect. And and I think that we we absolutely could have in California, but with like, it would be much more capital intensive. Everything's more expensive there. Um, but it's also a more established wine region in terms uh, compared to the Swartland specifically. So although the Swartland's been around for a long time, you know, it wasn't really globally known until pretty recently. And I think that's what our strength is here is that we kind of started with a blank slate um, and we were able to write our own story. And that was very powerful instead of trying to explain why our story was different than 500 other stories that were all Um, pitching the same thing. Yeah, Um, But I do make a little bit of wine in California too. (laughs) I've forgotten about that. You're right. And it's very good. Fog monster, right? Yes, fog monster. <laughs> Are you still making that? Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, yeah. For me, it's it's really important that you know I don't lose every single one of my briefs. <laughs> yeah, okay, so you've got a foot there, a foothold. Yeah, I do. Really. Have, yeah. It's just a yeah. it's just a toe, really. Yeah, a toehold, right? Uh, just tell us about where you met Chris. I mean, lovely Chris, one of the nicest people I know. You went on to set up your own eponymous business in two thousand seven. I can still remember the day that you guys said, "Hey, these are our new wines." But how did you guys meet? So. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, when you study winemaking, you do tend to, one does tend to travel around the world, hemisphere swapping, getting as, as much knowledge as possible for about five years or so. And I did my first internship in South Africa, um, but it was on my second international internship um, that I was working in the south of France in Chateauneuf de Pop. And there was um, a lovely uh, French friend of mine that I had actually met in California who was from Champagne. And um, I had, uh, because of the 35 hour work week, um, it was actually a lot of freedom in the internship. Yeah, to get a lot of free time. <laughs> and so one weekend I went to um, Champagne and I was on a train to Champagne and it turned out that Chris had also done an internship um, with this mutual friend. And we were both going to visit the same person on the same weekend. There was a festival in Champagne that weekend. And yeah, we just hit it off immediately. We um, obviously drank a lot of Champagne, but we bonded over, you know, I was working in Chateauneuf de Pop and he was working in Bandol. So we were, we were, um, you know, bonding over the varieties we were working with, Mm -hmm. talking about films and he even took me horseback riding. So it was a pretty picture-perfect way to start a relationship. <laughs> I mean, I'm always fascinated by you two because, you know, I've, I've, I'm sure you do argue, all couples argue sometimes, but you two seem to have a really good synergy. I mean, who does what? I mean, do you make decisions together? Are there bits that, that you 
only do and that Chris only does? And is he more vineyard, you more winery, or do you both do everything? Well, when we started out, we both did everything together, you know, because again, you know, we started out, we were first generation winemakers. Um, you know, we, we rented vineyards and borrowed cellar space and, and bartered where we could. Mm-hmm. So we really had to do everything together from, you know, pruning to labeling the winemaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but Chris actually first studied um, accountancy and he has an amazing <laughs> business sense. And so where we've evolved to is that, that he runs the business and, and everything, um, you know, around <laughs> planning and everything. I mean, all the really hard stuff. And um, I, I run, I, I'm in charge of production. So vineyards and winemaking. Okay. And, and um, does he get involved with things like the blending or, or I mean, he's in the vineyards quite a bit as well, isn't he? You know, it's, it's um, really important that, you know, we're on the same page mm-hmm. all the time. And um, yeah, the, when it comes to the, the, direction of things um you know we're on every page together but when it comes down to who's in charge of what um yeah i'm in charge in the in the winery and in the vineyards and he's in charge of everything else (laughs) and do you ever disagree or not i mean you don't seem to you seem yeah we disagree in a very um productive way you know it's like it's about it's about positive challenging to make things better and Mm. the thing is because we both trust each other completely in our jobs within the company, if we raise a, a question about it, and if, if the other person feels really strong about it, you know, we both know like, okay, this is, they know what's right in this, you know, whether yeah. it's me or whether it's him. But most of the time, if we're discussing something, it's like how to positively challenge the situation to bring things yeah. to the next level. Yeah. I mean, had, had you'd been to South Africa beforehand, you'd done an internship there. I think you were at Waterford, weren't you? They certainly claim you were there. I don't know if that's true. Did you ever think, hey, hey, I might come back here? No, I fell in love with the country first. And that's actually a really important part of the story. So I was at Waterford for six months under Kevin Arnold, who was just the most amazing mentor. And you know, it was because of him that, that I fell in love with the wines and, and the people um, of, of South Africa. And, and it's amazing to think Waterford was only about five years old then. Um, so they were, it was a brand new winery more or less at that point in time. I mean, for Melanie, we were 15 years right now. Mm-hmm. And so it was incredible that, you know, it, his vibe and enthusiasm around everything and how embracing he was really led to me falling in love with the country. So that when I met Chris in, um, this in France, it was, mm-hmm very easy to want to come back here. <laughs> okay, yeah. And I mean, we're recording this before the launch of my South Africa report we're, uh, next week, but this will come out after the report's come out. And so I'm delighted to, to tell you that, that Kevin's going to be my winemaking legend. So when, when you'll be there, I mean, I'll mention you and say, I think all of the people really that Kevin has mentored and all the stuff he's done with the Guild, I think is important. So, I mean, I'm yes. sure and that's going to put a smile on your face. Absolutely. No, I mean, th- th- no one deserves it better. He's just an absolutely incredible human, incredible winemaker. And, um, you know, I love that I can still call him pretty much any time of day, if I have a question or a problem with something, he's that kind of person. Mm, no, he's, he's a lovely guy. Well, good old Waterford for giving you a job in the first place. That was a fantastic move for them. D- just tell us a little bit. I mean, you've mentioned California. We've talked a little bit about the Swatland. What, what are the main differences? This is a huge question, I, I know, between California and South Africa, you know, in terms of, of the culture of wine, also a little bit maybe in terms of this sort of 
terroir that you're working with and, and the climatic influences? I know that's a big question, but if you could just give us a few insights. No, uh, yeah, I would say soil and sun would be the two biggest things. Um, I'll talk about sun first. You know, we think, you know, Mediterranean climate, it's warm, it's dry, it's breezy. Um, you know, in California, it's also warm and dry. I mean, for the most part during, during the harvest, but we're a bit closer to the equator. So the intensity of sun in South Africa is, it's, it's intense. <laughs> um, I think anyone who's been to South Africa realizes how quickly you sunburn down here. And, um, you know, it has the same effect on the grapes. So our, our degree days and the amount of light intensity do speed up the ripening process in South Africa. So we, we have a little bit less of the elusive hang time that they do in other parts of the world. Um, and that the, the pace of ripening definitely has an inherent quality, um, you know, on the tannins and on the fruit development um, in the wines. And, and that's what helps to give each region its, its unique uh, fingerprint. And then as far as the soils, I mean, South Africa has the oldest viticultural soils in the world. So you know, up to about 400 million years old. And that is um, so therefore our soils are very uh, decomposed, very poor in nutrients. And that's not a bad thing. Again, it's 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 helping to create the character, um, you know, the real um, uh, detailed character of those soil types. So because of that, we have very large areas of single soil types and it allows us to really highlight what those characters are. Um, in California, because of tectonic action, you know, whether it's you know earthquakes or volcanoes, the soil's a lot younger and a lot richer. So they they have slower ripening because of the slightly less um, uh, intense angle of the sun, but they also have richer soils. And so sometimes they have to control vigor, whereas we're that's not as much of a, a problem in South Africa. So those would be the two main differences um, yeah. for me and, and really help to, you know, when you're tasting those wines, those elements are shining through in the glass. Yeah, that's very true. It's interesting, just been finishing my report, as I said, and I didn't realise until I just discovered it this week that Table Mountain is four times older than the Himalayas. Yes. Yeah. You know, so, you know, it gives you some sense of, of how old South African soils are. It's it's really interesting. Tell us a bit more about the Swatland because that's where you guys made your made your name. Really, I mean, just tell us what makes that unique within that South African context. And then I want to ask you a little bit more about why it's become so successful so quickly. But maybe that's a second question. Okay, so yeah, for, for me, the Swatland is special because when Chris and I were bonding in in the south of France, um, you know, we, so after Champagne, we obviously um, would spend weekends together in between, um, you know, wherever we needed to be for our internships. So we would take trends going back and forth between Bundle and chateauneuf de pop but we would do lots of trips up the Rhone Valley and really bonded over Syrah and, um, you know, the, the fragrance, the aromatics, the spices. And um, so when we came back to South Africa together, we knew that we wanted to make that style of Syrah and, and Swartland with its climate being warm during breezy allowed us to not only achieve fragrant, spicy, and elegant Syrahs, but also we were able to do them in as close to nature as possible, farming as uh, close, uh, sorry, farming as organically as possible. And then also in the winery, being able to only use, you know, the natural yeast and the natural mallow. And if you're working in an area with higher disease pressure and you're a brand new winery and, you know, we were still in our twenties at the time and just starting out, I think the risks would have been, it would have been maybe more challenging to be able to make wine 
that way where we could really let the personalities shine through. Um, and then obviously hand in hand with, with going to a region like the Swartland um, where there was Syrah, there was also a lot of really great old line Shannon. So that mm. really helped to define what we wanted to do. But the real special thing about the Swartland is, is the people. So, you know, Chris is English South African. I'm from California. Neither of us are from winemaking families. And we showed up in the Swartland and people embraced it. And that for me is actually incredibly special. So the Swartland wasn't massively on the map, even had just moved to the area um, a couple of years earlier, but we weren't treated as outsiders ever. People yeah. really saw the genuine um, desire that we had to make very good, very authentic wine from the region that a region that had been, you know, people didn't talk about it before. So they, they saw this opportunity as a way to let their vines shine, I think. I mean, whose idea was the Swatland Revolution? Because you then set up this, you know, four or five, six of you, I suppose, altogether, was it, in total? Um, this amazing kind of festival, really, of, of celebration of the Swatland. How did that idea come about? Well, so it started, so the first Swatland Revolution was in 2010, and, and we had been getting together with Eben and, and um, Audi Badenhorst and Callie Lowe and um, Mark Kent had just invested in the Swartland um, uh, for Porcelainburg, and uh, that's where Kelly Lowe was based. And we would get together and we were trying to think of, you know, how to get people to understand the Swartland. We knew that the Swartland was amazing and we were working with incredible vines and we were making, you know, our version of world-class wines. But the rest of South Africa was like, uh, no, <laughs> like we want to drink you know, Stella Mush or Constantia, which are great regions, but there is more to the Western Cape than that. And um, we had trouble selling Swartland wines in South Africa. So mm. we were just trying to think of how we could collectively educate, you know, sommeliers and journalists about how special we thought the Swartland was. Mm. And we were invited out uh, with that group, along with uh, David Trafford, also joined us from Stellenbosch, to present um, South African Syrah, um, at the Hospice de Rhone in Paso Robles, California, which is an annual symposium that takes place. And we did the seminar talking about South African Syrah and the format of the Hospice de Rhone was so inspirational as to not being a festival or a marketing event. It, it really was an educational symposium mm -hmm. of high-end tastings, getting people to um, come and do presentations on what would be inspirational, as well as showing them what the region was doing as well. And that was um, really the idea. So we were at breakfast one morning in, in Paso Robles and like like a proper American diner style with, with you know, coffee and thick mugs. And, um, and we realized that this was the format. This was how we were going to be able to um, showcase what we thought was just amazing about the Swartland and get people to the Swartland, especially, you know, we're only one hour North of Cape Town and people treated us like we were five, six hours away. Yeah. And, uh, by the time we got home, Mark Kent had already like had, uh, had already presented us with like the design material and, and probably had already <laughs> trademarked the name as well. So yeah, it was, but it was an amazing, it was so quick because this was in like May, 2010 and it was, yeah, the first weekend of November, 2010. So only six wow. months later it came together. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it, because that really helped to launch the region, didn't it? I mean, partly that you guys were also talented, but you worked well together. And, and just the, as you said, you made it fun, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and it became um, it just 
the reputation, the ripple effect around it was so incredible that it ended up attracting a lot of other young winemakers to the region. So born yeah. from the Swartland Revolution was a movement called the Swartland Independent, where yeah. other like-minded producers um, all got together. And, you know, we started in a region with you know, four, five, six wineries, and now there's about 35. And, and yeah. so it's really helped to put the Swartland on the map. I mean, the quality of the vineyards was always there. There just wasn't the platform that where people were appreciating them as much as they are now. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us, talk a little bit about soil, because several of your wines, particularly Shenan's and your Syrah's wonderful wines, uh, are named specifically after soil types, aren't they, on the soil types on which they're grown. Just tell us how different they are in style. Yeah. So I, I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, it's, it's some of the oldest viticultural soils in the world. And that's um, it's very important to understand that because um, when you were talking about the age of, of um, Table Mountain versus the Himalayas, you know, the Himalayas, because of earthquakes and continental, you know, crashing, <laughs> um, it, it's getting higher and higher. But the, pretty much the whole of the Cape Winelands was underneath one giant uh, mountain that was bigger than Everest, uh, you know, several hundred million years ago. And because there's so little tectonic action in South Africa, the mountains and the valleys we have today and the exposure of the bedrock is because of erosion, um, erosion over hundreds of millions of years. And, and that's what's created the shapes we have today. So what that has done is it's exposed um, the, the, the pure bedrock of each site. And so we have very large areas, you know, more than you know, 10 or 20 square kilometers of single general soil types, you know, granite, schist, iron, um, and so when we talk about the soil types and the vines that are growing on them, um, it's not talking about like a little patch in the corner or a vein that runs through the vineyard. The entire vineyard is are on these like iron coffee clip soils, which have like a nice clay character um, that, that keep the soil integrity um, fantastic through the year. Clay is very, uh, it's like a sponge, you know, it absorbs water um, and it really gives water to the vines in the growing season in the spring, you, you get a nice big canopy, but as soon as the rain stops, which is always around on time, it puts a handbrake on giving back to the vine. And so you have this big canopy, now the vine wants to ripen fast, but the water has been restricted and the, the bunches are really small because it's growing in the shade of this big canopy, the skins are a little bit thinner. So you end up with these tiny berries, not very thick skins, uh, but this intense uh, juice concentration. So we always end up with like the highest extracts and the most mouthfeel in our iron soils for both the Shannon and, and the Syrah. Um, the granite soils are, are very decomposed. It's not like the granite, granite you find on a countertop. It, you know, if you drop it on the ground, it, it shatters into like a million pieces of sand. So it's very sandy soils actually, but are made of granite. And the roots can get incredibly deep they can reach their own water source, which is very beneficial. So it is a bigger canopy, just like on the iron soils, except it's because the roots are so deep, it can reach water throughout the ripening season as well. Mm. So we always end up with, with then, you know, slightly bigger berries, mm. but the longest, slowest ripening, yet with the highest freshness and, and, and acidity and, and perfume. And so that's because of this canopy that's been created um, and, the, and the grapes are really ripening in the shade. Um, and then the other main soil type we work with is schist. Um, schist is like a baked slate. 
you slate for roof tiles and the water runs off. It's the whole point of using it as a tile. And the vineyard acts the same way. So the roots never get as deep because the water never penetrates as deep. Um, and so everything stays smaller, the berries stay smaller, the skins stay thicker um, on both the Shannon and on the, the Syrah that we work with. And um, Shannon gets these like amazing freckles as it ripens. And um, it happens on the schist soil so much faster because there's more light penetration into the canopy naturally as well. So yeah, that, those for me are like the three main characteristics from our three main soil types. So we're never saying like, oh, it's picking up this mineral or yeah. you know, it's going to taste granitic or anything. It's about the way the vine grows on those soil types that mm. really highlight the differences. Mm. And, and yet, you know, gr wines grown on granite soils do often have a character. I mean, it, it's very difficult to describe it. I mean, stoniness or, you know, we always this word minerality um, a little bit too liberally, I think maybe, but but th they do have an intensity to them, don't they? Those, particularly the Shenans grown on granite. I don't know, I'm sure you find that too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, it's interesting that you brought up Shenan on granite because in the Swartland, although you find Shenan on all three soil types, you know, 80% of the Shenan in the Swartland are on the gran granite soils. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's because they just... They, they just showcase that character so well. What, what do you love about Chenin as a grape? I mean, you know, you said you kind of fell in love with the Rhone first and you're from California where I imagine there probably wasn't that much, certainly top-end Chenin grown. Uh, you'd be more likely to be making Chardonnay. What, what do you love about it as a grape? Yeah, it's actually interesting because Chenin was the number one grape variety in California until 1987. <laughs> but yeah, not the top-end quality. Central Valley <laughs> stuff, you was it? You insinuated there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But... Um, yeah, I mean, Shannon in, in South Africa has has a different history, um, you know, and we, in the, in the 1960s and 70s, the biggest wine brand in the world was Lieberstein, um, which was Shannon Blanc from South Africa. And because of that, there was this huge call to plant Shannon in South Africa. Um, and all of the old line Shannon we have today is actually thanks to this massive brand that was created back then. I mean, obviously, not all of them, but a lot, a huge percentage of the old so that's why, you know, of all the old vines in South Africa, 50% of them are Shannon Blum. Mm. But it's also a testament to, you know, Shannon's been in the country since 1600s, since the 1600s. So it's a testament to the fact that it does well here. You know, these, these are mostly dryland, old vine, bush vines um, that have never been irrigated and they, they thrive here. And so what I love about Shannon in South Africa is that it, it really has become the right grape planted in the right place and has such an amazing South African character that is that it has transformed. It's 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 adapted to our climate. Um, and that really shows in the personality of the wines. You know, yeah. for me, both Shannon and Syrah are are chameleons of terroir. And that's why we really like to work with them in the Swartland on these different soil types. That's interesting. And I was talking to Peter Allen Finlayson uh, from of Kristalum and Gabriel's Clue, a friend of both of ours, and he was saying he thinks that Syrah is now South Africa's best red variety. Would you agree with that? Um, I think Syrah is 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 the Swartland's best red variety. Yeah. It, it does amazing in a lot of places, but you know we're so lucky in South Africa that um, you know look at Cabernet and Stellenbosch and how well that does, and and Cabernet Franc for that matter in Stellenbosch, but in the Swartland and and in but we fear as well, you know, the Syrahs coming off of these, uh, these soils, these climates, I mean, they're just so expressive, um, you know, and, and that's why it's important that, that people around the world are starting to really understand what is the South African Syrah character? What is Swartland Syrah character? Um, 
know, and for me, it's, it's, it's the fragrance. It's those lilies and violets that are coming off. And the tannins are always approachable in their youth, yet so serious. Um, you know, there's, it's these chalky tannins early on with the wines and they've proven themselves to age very well too. So it's that, uh, not all Syrahs around the world. Can you drink when they're only two or three years old mm. and age mm. 20, 30 years very well also? Yeah, it's very true. I mean, we've talked about varietal wines, your Chenins and your Syrahs. You also make blends. I mean, really, really, really good blends. Just tell us a little bit, what's the secret of a good blend? Uh, I mean, I mean, a blend of grape varieties as much as a blend of different terroir. So when I'm in a vineyard, any vineyard we work with, like you need to feel good when you're in that vineyard. You need to want to be in that vineyard. And the more you're in the vineyard, the more hands-on work you're doing, from the vineyard work through to the winery, the more you understand what that vineyard is going to give to a specific wine, then the more you're going to understand how that's going to work with another site. And then the more you're going to understand how it's going to work with another variety. So when we're blending, you know, intimate knowledge of the vineyard is, is first and foremost to know where it's coming from, where it's going. Um, as you know, we're first generation um, in the wine industry. So a lot of it has been trial and error ourselves, but having a vision of where it wants to go, I, I kind of, I feel like I sort of have a Rolodex memory of wines I've tasted and vineyards I've been in. I actually had to um, do a Google image search for my <laughs> interns when I used that term the other day, because they had no idea what a Rolodex was. So <laughs> times have changed, but I still refer to it as, as that Rolodex. It's like knowing, uh what wine will do based on historical, you know, vintage independent, um, the vineyard when you're making it in that way is going to showcase the same base, uh, core personality traits every year. Mm -hmm. And I think the ideal situation with any blend is to blend it as early as possible when possible to do co-fermentations. So mm -hmm. like, I like to think of blends as, you know, when you, when you introduce a dog and a cat together, like it might take a while for them to warm up to each other if they're already mature. But when you raise puppies and kittens together, sometimes the kitten thinks it's a puppy and the puppy thinks it's a kitten yeah, and yeah. they just get along famously. And it's the yeah. same thing, you know, when you're, when you're blending is the earlier you can get it together, That's um, the more seamless it's going to become uh, as it matures. Yeah. T tell us a little bit about the Louvre Percent brand. Uh, uh, how did the project come about? Cause it's, it's sort of, you, you two are both, you know, very much involved with that. You know, you run it, but it's different from Molyneux, isn't it? Just tell us about the two things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, in 2013, we had just started working with Rusev Kruger, who um, is uh, our consultant in the vineyards. And uh, she was introducing us um, to vineyards that were not of the Swartland and they weren't Shannon and they weren't Syrah. And they were amazing sites, extreme sites, old sites. And we were like, wow, these are incredible sites, but you know, Malinu is Swartland, Malinu is Shenan, Malinu is Syrah. And so we didn't really have a, um, a place for them under the context of Malinu. But then the next year we um, were introduced to someone where we had the ability to start a, a new winery, a complete new winery. And we realized that the, using these special, special sites that Rusa had introduced us to, I mean, that was going to be the story that was going to be told. And what that story was, was, was a looking at 
these old vineyards and the way wines were made when those vineyards were planted and using those as a, um, a base point for these wines we wanted to, to make, which were, I refer to them as a deconstruction, reconstruction of the amazing wines that were made in the first half of the last century. So um, Cinso Cabernet blends, uh, making Chardonnay in a more um, salty mineral style, making um, uh, co-fermenting the Cabernet and the Cinso together. You know, the, the way that wines were made before, a little bit more modern intervention, but with the modern context of, I, I always joke around, better sound knowledge of cellar hygiene. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about transformation, because, you know, you're very involved with the protégé programme, which is something that the Winemakers Guild established. And it's been incredible, I think, for the industry to get people, winemakers, young winemakers of colour into the industry. And I certainly felt this year it's finally starting to bear fruit. You're seeing some very, very talented people starting to move up into important positions. Just tell us about, a little bit more about your involvement with it and also maybe about the Great Heart brand that, that uh, you're also involved with at Molyneux. Yeah, so the, the Protégé program is one part of what's called the Development Trust, um, which was uh, originally started in 1999 by the members of the Cape Winemakers Guild. Um, and it really aimed at uplifting um, uh, people working in the cellar, in the vineyard. Um, but the Protégé program itself is, is part of the Development Trust, but focuses on the most exceptional um, aspiring winemakers of historically disadvantaged backgrounds and giving them an opportunity to, to really shine. So it's it's um, a three-year internship program where they spend one year with each of the members of the Cape Winemakers Guild of their choice, because, you know, if they're into Syrah, they might, um, you know, maybe they go to to um, Carl Schultz, or if they want uh, Bart Shannon, they're going to go to Sebastian. So they get to choose which winemaker they're with for the whole year. So it's not just about harvest, it's about the vineyards, it's about... Um, running the business. It's about everything kind of around um, the wine industry. Um, and the young winemakers that are coming out of this are absolutely incredible. So of the graduates of the program, now 18 of the graduates are, now have lead winemaking positions in South Africa. And it's it's just a start. You know, it, there's, there's a lot of work that's still um, needs to be done. And, you know, transformation is very important. You know, the, the more diverse the wine industry, the better it's going to become. You, know, you get more personalities, more tastes, more um, uh, people connect differently. It's, I, I think that it's, uh, the protege program is, it really is one of the most successful uh, wine industry transformation programs yeah. in the world. And, um, you know, it was very inspirational for us in our own company. So with, with in starting, starting in 2020, um, we started a company called Great Heart Wines, which is owned by each of our employees. They're all shareholders in this winemaking company. Um, and, you know, we realized in 2020 during the pandemic that the idea we had starting years before, it was actually really important to enact at that moment because there were 200,000 jobs in the wine industry at risk in South Africa because of the lockdowns. Um, and the prohibition that we were facing in South Africa. And we realized that the most vulnerable people in this were the people that were the core to each winery. Hmm. And so we started Great Heart Wines as a way to, um, for our employees to have just, just a more solid um, uh, potential through the future. 
you know, not just about being employed, but about continuing to teach skills and also about ownership. So um, I mentioned each person is a, a shareholder, but the most important thing for me is that we've divided it into four sectors, winemaking, viticulture, um, packaging and warehousing, and sales. And each person from one of those teams gets an opportunity to be a director of the company as well. Oh, great. So, yeah. it, so it's it's um, not just about you know getting extra cash. Mm-hmm. It's actually about teaching, educating, mentoring, and and you know really giving thanks to the people that we wouldn't be able to run our company without. And anybody in the UK listening wants to buy those wines? They're at Waitrose, aren't they? I think is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Listen, final question, because I could talk to you for hours. You're so fascinating, but you're such a busy person and you're I'm amazing. I don't know how you do it. I don't know if you ever sleep, really, but, uh, you know, you've got this lovely family. You're making these incredible wines. You've got your vegetable garden. You're doing cookies. How do you get away from wine? Is is cookery a way for you to get away from wine and just say, stop? I don't want to think about wine for, for a couple of hours. No, it is. I, I like to say I like to please people with flavor. So when I'm not making wine, I, I am cooking, really. Um, I still get out and, you know, do a bit of astronomy for me major celestial events but really when it comes to planning a dinner party like coming up with the menu doing the shopping prepping for for three or more days for a dinner party and then and then just um you know bringing out the blind wines that are going to go with the food i i just that's my vibe (laughs) (laughs) i think that's a fantastic vibe listen andrea it's always a pleasure to talk to you i always learn so much from tasting and chatting to you thanks for your time um and your amazing wines uh people want to buy them in the uk you're now brought into the uk i think by liberty wines is that right correct yeah. Right, Liberty Wines, great heart from Waitrose. Andrea, thank you so much. Astronauts, you know, you know, the, the astronauts lost was our gain as wine drinkers. <laughs> Lovely to see, you, and I'll see you soon. Thank you. Wow, Andrea is so accomplished, passionate, and knowledgeable. I really enjoyed having her on the show. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Master of Wine Olivia Humbrecht from Domain Zint Humbrecht in Alsace. See you then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.